0: Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord. And He shall lift you up. Higher and higher and He shall lift you up. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord. And He shall lift you up. Higher and higher and He shall lift you up. One more time. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord, humble thyself in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up higher and higher, and He shall lift bow
1: for a word of prayer. Gracious Father, you have put a new song in our hearts. We are so grateful for this opportunity on your Sabbath day to sing out our faith and to sing praises to your name to make as you make our song complete. We offer our praise the praise of our joy-filled hearts directly to you. We trust in your love. We trust in your goodness. We know that you are always near through the power of your Holy Spirit to your gracious ears. We know that the praise of even a few that comes from within is as great as a symphony, as great as the best chorus. We thank you for your spirit, your spirit that empowers us to worship you. We pray, we ask that you help us not to check our hearts at the door, help us to bring all that we are before you. Father, we ask that you guide our steps. We ask that you protect our way, our families. We are so grateful for your presence in our lives, the guidance of your Holy Spirit, We offer ourselves for your service and we praise the name of Jesus who taught us how to pray with these words, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, this message is actually part three of a series I've been doing, dealing with some of the things that the Apostle Paul had said. First, uh, the, uh, It wasn't last week, or wasn't last week. Anyway, for a couple of weeks, we've been looking at some of the things Paul said to Timothy when Timothy was depressed. He needed to have, he needed to be lifted back up. He needed to um, to get catch to the fire that he had. But th- this afternoon, I want to look at another portion of Scripture from this man who many believe is one of the greatest men in history. And we know that man is Paul the Apostle, one of the greatest men in history. Paul's theology is well known. He revealed to us in his letters in the New Testament, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, how God wants us to to be members in God's family through faith and how we are to live our lives by faith, not by works. Both the moment we come to Jesus by faith and the way we live our lives is by faith. But apart from his theology, Paul's life was an amazing example of a great and successful life. Judging from his influence on human history, His life has a lot to teach us. Paul gave us his motto for life. And that motto is just a few short words from his letter to the believers at the Church of Philippi. They are six short words. I know some versions have seven short words. I like the one with just six with a comma. (laughs) (laughs) six short words that epitomize the character of Paul's life. And Paul did not make us speculate as to what the secret was of his life. He openly revealed to everyone who would listen and to all who would read his letter through the centuries to follow, the letter he wrote to the believers at the city of Philippi. And the motto for his life was simply this, For me to live is Christ. Philippians chapter 1 verse 21. This was the ruling passion of his life. Paul lived for Christ. When we read the biographies of most great men, we usually find a very complex reason for their greatness, or we don't find any reason at all. After reading about the lives of most great people, we end up with a vague desire to do better, but we still don't know how to do better. We get excited for a moment, but since we don't know how to do better, we continue on as we normally have. But Paul told us what to do, how to do better. And how was that? How was it that we're supposed to be better? Well, there was nothing mysterious about his life. The how was the working principle of his life. There was really nothing mysterious. If we want to live like Paul, we simply must live for Christ. On one side, we live for Christ. On the other side, we live for Christ. (laughs) As we move forward, we live for Christ. Paul's life was concisely and accurately summed up by those six short words, for me to live is Christ. His motto wasn't a clue that we need to decipher. It was straightforward. Yet the question naturally arises, what did Paul really mean when he wrote, for me to live is Christ? A good way to answer that question is to look at his life. When we look at Paul's life, we realize that his life was composed of two very distinct lives. One could say that Paul had two lives. His two lives were very different from each other. And as if to mark that distinction in a striking way, Paul had two names right in his first life his name was saul s a u l in his second life his name was paul p a u l and during that time of his life he became known as the great apostle to the gentiles paul's first life when he went by the name saul was lived under the most auspicious circumstances available in his society. He was born into a prominent family. He attended the most prestigious school of theology of his day. He was the son looked upon not only by his parents, but also by the people as their hope of their religion. After his brilliant years in school, when he had learned from the greatest teachers in Jerusalem, he burst Onto the scene with his talents, with his intellect, he took his place as a leader in the troubled political movement in his day. He was full of youthful enthusiasm and he had the pride of a Pharisee. It should not be surprising that he did not submit himself to live the quiet life of a temple rabbi. He was looking for a way to distinguish himself above the rest. And it wasn't very long before he recognized an opportunity. He realized that persecuting the followers of Jesus was his way to get to the top. His conspicuous place among the murderers of the very first recorded martyr, Stephen, stamped him as a leader in the Jewish society. Saul was a young, energetic man. His fame grew. The people knew, the people saw a young Pharisee determined to uphold the Jewish religion, whatever it took. His zeal to stamp out the followers of Jesus brought him much fame, much popularity. Perhaps there wasn't another young man in Judea, who had such prospects as the young Saul had. The Jewish culture was at his doorstep. The whole Jewish world was at his doorstep. He was courted as the rising star of his day. He left no stone unturned in his quest to find more opportunities to add to his influence and power. We know what happened to the believers in Jerusalem soon after Paul arrived on the scene. Saul, he's still Saul. We know what happened after Saul arrived on the scene in Jerusalem. Saul and the other religious leaders wrecked hatred, havoc, persecution on the followers of Jesus. They had no choice but to flee for their lives. They left Jerusalem. They went in secret to new places in Judea, Samaria, in the region, to Phoenicia, north. They went to places where the Jewish people normally didn't live. Saul had succeeded in ridding the capital, Jerusalem, of Jerusalem. The followers, the followers of Jesus. Almost all of them left. But along with that achievement, the biggest reason for his fame also left. But Saul wasn't finished. His ambition wasn't quenched. His pharisaical desire wasn't satisfied. He was determined not only to rid the capital of the Jesus followers, but he was also determined to reverse the spread of the Jesus movement that was spreading throughout the region. And what what did he do? We know the story. He applied to the high priest for a commission. He applied for the authority to hunt those Jesus followers down. The man would later write, the man who would later write, For me to live is Christ. He started out his professional career, he started out Christless on a mission to destroy the church. Saul set off on his hunt. He was heading to Damascus, where intelligence reports had pinpointed a large contingent of Jesus' followers. Oh my! As the gates of Jerusalem faded in the distance, he was excited, but he was still reflective. The hunt was on. He intended to capture the followers of Jesus, and if he didn't kill them, he would return them to Jerusalem for trial. And as he and his posse made their way, toward Damascus he reflected on all that had happened in his life up to that point. He was a thinking man. We know that. And I'm confident that the Holy Spirit must have caused him to analyze himself up to that point in his life. He knew that he was a murderer. He knew it. Yet he rationalized his violence thinking that he was okay because He was upholding the Jewish traditions, and surely God approved, so he told himself. And there he was, the leader of an armed group of religious enforcers, hunting down those who simply chose to follow a man who had already been crucified, As they traveled toward Damascus, they surely passed through villages still fragrant with the words of Jesus, still talking about the stories of the miracles he had performed and about the lives he had changed. Saul heard the people talk about how Jesus was self-denying. He heard about the many people who had been healed simply from the touch of this Rabbi named Jesus. He heard the people speak many kind words about Jesus. He heard about how Jesus loved the children. At first, he shrugged it all off. He had a reputation now. He was Saul of Tarsus, the rising man of his time. He was at the center of the Jewish religious world. His name was openly talked about throughout. The land. Perhaps his vanity grew so great that his thoughts were all about himself. For me to live is Saul. I suppose that's what Saul was thinking. For me to live is myself. He was the center of his own life. His life was like all those other lives back in Jerusalem. The other Pharisees, the members of the Sanhedrin, his own father in Tarsus, they were all living lives just like his. I imagine that his vanity was incredible, but so is the power of God's Holy Spirit. As he traveled down those dusty paths, his conversion had begun. The Holy Spirit planted questions into his mind. Why are all those pilly people willing to die for a dead, discredited man? Why was this dead man so popular? Isn't life all about me? As he passed through Capernaum, Bethsaida, and by the lakeshore of Galilee, he listened to the memories of the people as they talked about the life of Jesus. And those stories begin, began to cast a questioning, sacred influence into Saul's, Saul's rational mind. I believe that the silent intervention of the Holy Spirit was working on Saul's mind as he traveled to Damascus. He didn't know it, but he was being prepared for an interview with the Son of God who would ask him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? We don't know how deep his repentance was or how the justifying grace came down from heaven to enter his soul, but we do know that his life was changed in the most radical way. The center of Saul's life had been replaced with something new. Never had a life so filled with anti-Jesus thoughts been so completely brought to a halt. There had never been a more sweeping revolution in any life as what happened that day when Jesus interviewed the rabbi named Saul. That day Saul abandoned himself and he subordinated everything forever to his new supreme passion to live for Christ. Two lives are plainly in view. The life of Saul, who lived for himself, stands in stark contrast to the life of Paul, who lived for Christ. Saul was no longer there. He had been changed into a new person. In Paul's view, everything in his first life had been a mistake. He wrote, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. In Philippians chapter 3 verse 7. He viewed his prior mission and his notable career as a total loss. He viewed it as garbage. And we know in the Greek they actually used the word dung. He viewed his life as if it was camel poop. Former his former life. Once he he was viewed as a rising star by the religious leaders of his day. But after meeting Jesus, he realized his life had been a waste of energy. His life had been misused time. In all Jerusalem, there was no man stricter with his religion than Saul had been. No man took his place more regularly in the temple. No man kept the, the Sabbath more, with more scrupulous care. He was the rabbi's rabbi. With with respect to the law, he was blameless. Just the man whom you would say could never be changed. But Saul was not as far from the kingdom of God as everyone had thought. There was room in his religious heart for the most sweeping reform that had ever occurred in a life. There are only two centers that we can have in our lives. The Apostle John wrote it this way. John wrote in 1 John chapter 5, verse 12, He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Now let me tell you, whatever we have, Whatever you want to call it, existence, self-awareness, continuity with the universe, whatever it is that we have, we do not have life on our own. God's condition for living is to live for Christ. He who has the Son has life. There are no other options. A vital concern, then, is what is the center of your life? For me to live is blank. If your answer is, for me to live is myself, then what kind of purpose does your life have? Is your purpose used to fill your approximate 80 years' of existence here on planet earth in the pursuit of food and pleasure. And then it's over. Or do you have a noble life with a purpose to live forevermore? Do you have a life whose center is to live for Christ? It is wonderful that we can draw upon the life of Paul for much encouragement. Paul made Jesus the center of his life, even when he knew less about Jesus than what most of us know. That's right. When Paul made that decision to follow Jesus, he knew less about Jesus than what we know. The truth is, and it may be a bit startling, that the center of the life of most people is all about self. And yes, we've heard about Jesus a lot in our young lives or in our older lives. Many of us from childhood. The features of the life of Messiah Jesus are as familiar to us as our own lives. Saul's life was being worked on by the Holy Spirit as he traveled to Damascus. He didn't know it, but he was on his way to meet Jesus. How much more have our past lives prepared us for a change in our lives? Some of us refer to Paul's conversion as a sudden conversion. Perhaps it was so. But if your life were changed today, it would not be a sudden conversion. Your whole past has led you to understand the focus of the center of your life. Your preparation to know the center of your life is mostly complete. So then the question you have to ask is simple. Is for me to live myself? Or is for me to live Christ? Are you living your life for Christ? Examine the lives of other people who were great men. Ask yourselves to to contrast the purpose of the lives of great men with Paul's purpose for life. If you think about it, it's really difficult to find great men and women whose purpose in life was to match the working principle of Paul's life. For me to live is Christ. It's not easy to find another person with a purpose that can match up with Paul's life. Yes, I know there are some out there, but there aren't that many. Give it a try. Examine the purposes of people who have lived great lives. You will find most often, for me to live is pleasure. For me to live is business. For me to live is sports. For me to live is patriotism. For me to live is to make friends and influence others. Or, put in other words, for me to live is myself. There really are only two centers for life. What, not, what rises naturally to your mind when I ask you to fill in the blank? For me to live is what? What word comes out of your lips in response to that question? Is it business? Is it money? Is it pleasure? Is it yourself? Is it Jesus? I hope you don't think to yourself, for me to live is business. For me, To live is money. For me. To live is myself. If these answers. Reflect your answer. Then I must ask you. What kind of an end. To your mortal life. Will that bring. How much nobler. And pleasing to God. Is it. If you can say. With Paul. For me. To live. Is Christ. In the perspective of eternity all lives other than those lives lived for Christ will seem poor and small and lost and self-serving. When we move on to eternity there will be plenty of people who will claim the cross who will claim that they knew Jesus, yet Jesus will say, I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. This is, these are words Jesus said. Where is the person who will live For Jesus now. Who will live for Jesus now? It's a decision. Every one of us has to make. The truth is. Eternity. Is not that far away. For each of us. And so let me. Say it another way. Jesus. Wants. Your life right now. There will be no uncertainty about death if we have lived for Christ. So let it be your motto just as it was Paul's motto, for me to live is Christ. When Paul left Jerusalem, his new master Jesus, the Son of God, Crossed his path one day on the way to Damascus, he was changed forever. As the Master crossed your path, we know how our lives can be made worthy. For me to live is Christ. We know how death can become gain for me to live as Christ. Don't be fooled by the mindset of the godless culture around us that sees death as merely the cessation of life, a life with no meaning. How sad our godless culture is. Instead, I recommend that everyone takes the same step that I did as a young lad, 13 years old. Take Paul's life motto as your own for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Death will be gain only when to have lived was Christ. Amen.
0: Hallelujah. Something beautiful, something good. All my confusion, he understood. All I had to offer him was brokenness and strife. But He made something beautiful of my life. If there ever were dreams that were lofty and noble, they were my dreams at the start. And hopes for life's best will be that I are born down deep in my heart. But my dreams turned to ashes, my castles all crumbled, my fortune turned to loss. So I wrapped it all in the rags of my life and laid it at the ground. So something All my confusion he understood. All I had to offer him was brokenness and strife, but he made